We've been doing a series together for the past uh, just over a month on kind of life is hard, and the topic today is grieving is hard, and grieving is hard, death is hard, aging is hard, all of those things that go along with it are difficult, and sometimes it's hard to know how do you behave around someone who's grieving, how do you interact, how do you talk about grief and death and those difficult things. This past week, I was describing the last Lions game to my son. And as I was describing the brutal loss, Jordy looked at me and said, Dad, I am so sorry. (laughs) That I'm sorry the Lions lost. And I kind of glossed over it. He was in that moment, demonstrating a lot of compassion for me. I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm really used to it, son. This is nothing new. I've been grieving all of my life, the lion's losses. But I, I realized he was actually executing a biblical principle, which is to mourn with those who mourn. And I get it's a foolish little lion's loss thing, but he was kind of grieving or mourning with me in that moment, and I thought that was really great. And he's, I've noticed that in him several times. It's like he has this innate understanding when someone's grieving or when someone's experienced loss, you should take a moment and say, I'm so sorry you're going through that. There are many real examples of grief that we deal with on a daily basis, things that we grieve that perhaps we even gloss over. There's some large like death, right? When somebody dies, we know we should grieve. In the Bible, they used to have people who would be paid to come mourn and grieve with you when death happens. We can also grieve during times of, of war and hearing bad news brings grief and sadness. We were half laughing, half grieving yesterday in our elders meeting, talking about all of the different things that come along with aging. The pain and difficulty that's, that's very real. There's suffering, there's broken relationships, there's sickness, there's feelings of rejection and isolation being let down. And all of these things can bring about grieving In our lives, it takes place in large and small ways every day, and we feel those effects. There's probably not a day goes by that you don't feel a sense of grief in some way over something. Last time I spoke, I was we talked about Psalm 56, where the Bible says that God keeps track of all of our sorrows, and He's collected all of my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. The church should be a place specifically where it's okay to grieve, right? It should be okay to grieve and to deal with sadness in the church in the midst of people who love you and you love. It should also be a place where in the midst of sorrow, we can always look to Jesus. We can always look to Christ. So in order to do this, we need some biblical principles like My son Jordy, grieving with those who grieve. We could use some biblical principles and that would be one, but we're going to look at a few from John 11. And if you notice in the bulletin, it says from verses 1 to 44, we're not going to cover all of that, so uh, that's a lot. But we're going to talk about kind of the beginning and end of this story and some of what takes place and take some of these principles 
out for our own life. So we'll just start out by reading the first four verses. Now a certain man was ill, John 11 verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Many of you know the the story of of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and how dear they were to Jesus. This was um, people that he had spent time with. They were close friends, and we'll see throughout this passage that he loved them deeply. He had great care and concern for them. And so a messenger comes to him and says, Lazarus is sick. He's dying and we'll know from this passage that he died. And how does Jesus respond to this? That gives us a lot of insight into what we should understand when we're grieving or going through difficulty. Here's the first principle. Your grieving is a canvas on which the glory of God can be displayed. This is also in our digital bulletin. There's notes there if you'd like to pull them up. It has each of the principles. But your grieving is a canvas on which the glory of God can be displayed. It's interesting in verse 4 that he says, Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. The experience of suffering and pain in this life gives us greater opportunity to bring glory to God. Here Jesus is saying that the glory of God, the glory that God's going to receive through this sickness and death, through these, the sorrow of these people is worth the glory that God's going to bring to himself. He is going to be praised through this. And it's worth it. You know, it's interesting if we were to share testimony, we could probably all over the auditorium share testimony of how God has worked good things through even sadness or sorrow or difficulty. But if we were to read the scriptures as well, you could see just example after example of how men of faith and women of faith walked through pain and hardship and suffering and difficulty. And how they did so with faith and it, it encourages us. Right? That, that we could, too could act in faith, that we too could, could bring glory to God through faith. But, but many of these people went through very difficult things. If you were to start reading through Genesis, there'd be one that you would encounter about uh, eight chapters in, and it's Noah. He showed the value of following God by laboring to obey him. He built a boat for roughly 100 years, maybe more. 100 years he labored to build a boat, because God said to. He demonstrated great faith. We see Abraham's life. It was a canvas for the glory of God. He trusted in God so much. He wasn't really a follower of Jesus. But God called him. He trusted God so much that he left everybody he knew. Went to a place he didn't know where he was going. A couple of people went with him. And even throughout that process, he was willing to sacrifice his own child for God's glory. 
says later that he knew God could even raise him from the dead. He had, he had a, a belief that God would even raise his son from the dead if that's what it called for, but he was willing to do whatever it took for God's glory. We see Joseph's life demonstrating that he was willing to wrongfully suffer for God's glory. To live a life that was pleasing to God. Moses demonstrated that he would rather not have all of the riches of the most powerful kingdom if it meant that he got to be and know God. David's willingness to trust God in the caves, right? He had Saul, who was uh, the one persecuting him, was in the same cave with him asleep. He could have just killed Saul and been done with the person who was pursuing his life. But he said, I'm not going to lift up my hand against God's anointed He continued to suffer and experience pain and grief and loss because he wanted to please God. We see what Paul endured, right? There's many throughout the scriptures who have set their life, who have ordered their life in such a way that they've experienced hardship, but because through it, God would be pleased. We would see the value of what it means to follow God, that it's better it's better than all the world has to offer. We think often, I often think of Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith. We describe it where, where many of these people were explained and described throughout it. And it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. So all these people who trusted God and followed him and set their life apart for his glory, but have seen them, But having seen them and greeted them from afar off, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out. They would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, here's the point, they desired a better country. That's a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared for them a city. The people who have been willing to endure grief and hardship with faith, they display God's glory. They're people that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Perhaps you've had that feeling or wonder, is is God ashamed of me? Because I can be ashamed of God maybe at moments. Be ashamed of me. A person who walks through hardship and difficulty with faith, their life displays the glory of God and it's in them that they are, he is not, uh, he is not afraid to be called their God. He is not ashamed to be called their God. We devote our lives to many things. Um, perhaps you've seen recently we um, watched The Princess Bride with our kids. I don't know if you've seen The Princess Bride, but we showed that to our kids And I was really hoping that they could appreciate it, and they did. They loved it. And it was a lot of fun. But there's a character in The Princess Bride whose name is Indigo Montoya, and he spends his whole life trying to revenge the murder of his dad. He's devoted his life to the glory that he will feel when he's executed revenge on his father. Perhaps I've already sucked all the fun out of the movie for you, examining it at this level. But nevertheless, right, so he spent his whole life searching for that glory. As Christians, we're called to spend our lives poured out for God's glory. 
that he would be pleased. That we would be able to spread that God is so worth glory that I'm willing to walk through hardship. I'm willing to walk through grief with a deep love for my Father. That's what how your life can be a canvas for the glory of God to be displayed. It's interesting. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But it says that this, he says in uh, verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. That when you live your life for God's glory, right? many times perhaps we think, all lives lead to death. And there's some truth in that. But when we live life for God's glory, your life does not lead to death. It leads to something that far outweighs death, that lasts far beyond death. It leads to life. When you live life for God's glory and pointing and, and praising him, your life leads to life. Jesus referred to Lazarus here as falling asleep. And one day Lazarus, right, will, will also rise again. He rises in this passage as we'll talk about, but he, he one day rises again to be with Jesus forever. And those who live life for God's glory, their life leads to life, not to death. So, your life, when uh, you're grieving is a canvas on which the glory of God can be displayed. That's the first principle. The second one is all of your circumstances pass through the hands of a good and loving God. It says in the very next verse, after verse 4, so when Jesus has heard it, he said this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. It's interesting that the author kind of goes to, to saying that statement right there. And we'll discuss how the next verse calls that into question. Does he really love them? Does he really care for them as he says he does? But there are general actions of God's love that, that he loves all people. He causes it to rain. He takes notes of the sparrow. He knows the amount of hair on our heads, and so there is a, a love that he has generally for all people. And then we see here specifically that Jesus is intending to show his glory to Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the others. And so he loves them, and what does he do? He stays two days longer. So, so Jesus is called to go save Lazarus's life, to go heal the sick as he had done many times before. And his love for them causes him to stay where he's at for two days. We would think the response of Jesus and his love for him is that he would, he would run to be with Lazarus. But he doesn't. Jesus wants to accomplish something else through this. Jesus is intending to do one of the greatest acts of love and kindness that he does for any of us. He's going to show his glory to Mary, to Martha, to Lazarus, to the disciples. He's going to show them who he is. He's going to give himself for them. 
God's greatest act of kindness towards his creation is to give and to reveal himself to us. That's how he shows his love for us primarily. By giving himself and showing himself to us. The Bible says, there's, there's a few passages to back that up. The Bible says in John 3.16 that for God so loved the world that what? He gave himself. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. God's love to the world has been demonstrated through revealing his nature and sending his son that he gave them Jesus. That's how he demonstrated his love to the world. What better gift could we have than by seeing and knowing who Jesus is? In John 17, another passage, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, so this is the high priestly prayer. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays to the Father and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So how does God love us? By revealing himself to you. By making it to where you can know the living God. By giving himself for you. John 14, 21, a few chapters earlier from John 17, it says, Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. And who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. By manifest, he will reveal himself to you. He will make himself known to you. That Jesus loves us by showing himself to us, by giving himself for us. He mainly loves us, John Piper said, he mainly loves us by showing us and giving himself, giving us himself and his glory. God loves us mainly by giving us himself and all that he is for us in Jesus. Don't measure the love of God for you by how much wealth, health and wealth and comfort he brings to your life. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you. How much of himself he gives to you to know and to enjoy. God's revealing of himself results in salvation. The more he shows you of himself, the more you will follow him and love him and spread his glory in the world. And the clearest revelation of himself in this passage is that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What he asks Martha. So the question for us today is, is do we believe that? So God loves us in every circumstance that we face in life, whether it be grief or sorrow, hardship, good or bad. All of those things pass through the hands of a loving God. How does God love us? By revealing himself to us. By giving himself for us. By promising that even the hardships you endure will work together for his good. That's principle two that 
All, the, hand, all of uh, the circumstances you face in life pass through the hands of a good and loving God. Here's principle number three. Your grieving is a part of the plan of a sovereign God. The circumstances that have led to your grieving are part of the plan of a sovereign God. I, I do want to take a moment to say that these are hard things, right? And so um, I, I, have, I believe in many ways, you know, I'm 30 and I've experienced grief in ways that perhaps you haven't seen, but I also haven't experienced near as much grief as many of you have. I guess I'm technically 29. I realize I said I'm 30. Jumping ahead. And so I, I don't want this to come across in any way harsh or unloving. Some of you, I do know your stories and they've been pressed by in You've been pressed by incredible hardship. And I would prefer in many ways to just sit down and mourn with you over those things, right? But I think it's important that we also know what the Bible says, and I'm not standing on what I have to say even about this topic, but what Jesus has said and how he handled himself. But I also, you know, I think the author of John included that verse now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I feel like he put that in in verse 5. So when he delayed a couple days and didn't go visit them, you were like, did Jesus even love these people? It's almost like the author was kind of defending Jesus a little bit. So I also just wanted to mention that on, on my behalf as we talk about difficult things that this isn't out of a heart of, of rigidity or um, downplaying what people go through, but it's out of a heart of, of care and, and love for you. Talk about what the Bible says. So here's the third principle. Your grieving is a part of the plan of a sovereign God. As in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Jesus waited two days. What was his plan? Why was he waiting for, for two days? The disciples talked to him a little bit about this. They said, Jesus, if we go to Judea, people have been seeking your life. You're going to be killed. We're getting awfully near Jerusalem, which is where many of the religious leaders are. And you're going to be killed if we go near there. Jesus prayed and before, uh, or excuse me, Jesus said in verse 14, told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for you, your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus waited for two days. His plan was he, he said he was glad that they weren't there for Lazarus' death, but for now because he's going to do something. And so he heads to Judea to meet up with the people there because this is all a part of his plan. He was not late. He was perfectly on time. He would even say later, as he prayed before calling out to Lazarus, he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said on the, this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So his plan for this specific allowing of Lazarus' death was for the glory of God, and it was for that the people around him may believe that he was sent from God. Jesus was accomplishing something specific. Specific. 
And those who cling to Jesus, as they walk through grief, they can see what God is accomplishing. You know, it would be a shame to suffer without cause. Perhaps you've known somebody or you've seen this maybe in your own life. You know, we've, we've seen the scenario where like the, the guy is too stubborn to go to the doctor. And so he just kind of suffers needlessly with, with pain. There's somebody close to me who has went through long periods of life without, um, without taking medication that would help them. They just refuse to. Perhaps you've been or you've seen that, and it's, it's a shame when you see somebody go through suffering without cause. You're like, why would you be suffering? Life could be easier than that. Why make life harder than you have to make it? But there is a great amount of, of purpose that comes to our suffering and our grieving, our pain, when we know that it's the part of a plan of a sovereign God. It brings purpose. Jesus said of Lazarus that this sickness does not lead to death, but to life. When you can start to see God working in your grief, you can see the life that is being worked out in death, in sadness, in grief. That God brings good out of grief. He brings joy out of pain. And he can bring glory out of hardship in our lives. We can see his plan at work. We can trust in the hands of our loving God. If we can purpose that our life will be a display of God's glory, we can start to see the life that our pain leads to. We can start to see the good that God brings out of our hardship. Every once in a while, Marissa and I will like to plan a little bit of a day for our kids that'll be fun and enjoyable. And I'll say, go get in the van, kids. And they want to know all the details of where we're going. My kids are very, they very much like to know exactly where we're going and what we're doing. This morning before I left for work, or before I left uh, for the church today, the, um, my two-year-old was up. And my two-year-old said to me, we're going, Dad. And I said, I'm going to church. He said, take the van? I was like, well, I was going to take the truck today. He was very aware of where I was going, what I was doing, what vehicle I was taking. He had lots of questions. And it's always interesting to me to have to run things by what vehicle I can take with my two-year-old, but he likes to know exactly where we're going. And so sometimes on those days that we're planning something fun, maybe I don't like to give all the details to my children. And so we'll jump into the vehicle and I just say, we're going somewhere. Trust dad. It's going to be good. Just trust dad. And sometimes it's a long car ride. <laughs> and they don't like long car rides. We, they've made far too many Oregon and Michigan drives to enjoy any length of time in a vehicle. And so they just trust. We have to trust that the hardships we endure and go through are part of the plan of a sovereign God. The Bible says that he works all things together for good those who love God are called according to his purpose. God is at work. We have to trust that. God has shared 
a wonderful reality that he's making for us in heaven. He calls us to trust him with the circumstances of our life here. He assures us that all these things work together for our good. And today we're called to trust him with the unknowns. Perhaps the most interesting part of this passage, so, so Jesus goes and he meets Mary and Martha and they have conversations and discussions that we're not really going to talk about too much here. But kind of the most interesting part of this passage is when Jesus started crying. It says in verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid them? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. There are many reasons uh, people have come up with with why Jesus wept. It actually is not overly clear here. There are some people, you know, he mentioned that he was troubled. He had been kind of questioned for his motives leading up to this. Why weren't you here, Jesus? Some people wondered, was he weeping over that? Was he weeping because he was frustrated and dealing with anger at the people because they had questioned the Son of God's motives? Perhaps? Why was he weeping? Was it because of the unbelief of the people around him? Was he, some people have talked about, he was confronted with his greatest enemy death that he would once and he would someday overcome. So was he weeping because he was encountering death and the people around him? Well, Jesus so often, you know, he, he cries multiple times throughout Scripture. Moved with compassion when he's seen people who were scattered like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. He had cried over Jerusalem. And so one of these things that this passage does is it shows the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was a human like us. He cried. There's other passages that showed he, he ate food and drank water, right? Here he cried. He was a human like us. Why else was Jesus crying? Before I uh, moved back to Michigan, I grew up in Michigan. I was in Oregon. Most of you know all that. But I was in Oregon and I managed a, uh, a charter school that we had there. I managed the office staff. And uh, there was, it was there at that kind of same location. My children went to child care and, and Marissa and I worked in the same office and we were all together. Well, one day they said, we have this old fish tank that we need to do something with. And it was kind of a large fish tank. I was like, oh, that's super cool. Uh, you could throw that in my office and then I could put fish in it and that would be fun. And so we did that and it was in my office and uh, overflowed a couple times, which was terrible. <laughs> but it was in my office and, and right by my desk and I got to watch these little fish that we, we bought grow up and that was kind of cool. And we picked up all of these fish with my children. I thought they would have a lot of fun. And so we bought these angel fish and different types of, of fish. And when we put them in the fish tank, I realized that they had thrown in an extra little fish. And I had kind of done some research into what types of fishes could, fish could go together. And there was a little fish in there extra. Well, my daughter took an especial liking to this fish. She named him Leaf. And she named all of my fish, but she really liked that one. Well, two days later, I came into work, 
and I realized that Leaf was belly up at the top of the tank. And that made me sad, and I thought, well, I could get rid of him, and my daughter was three, maybe four at the time, and tell him, you know, tell her the fish went to college or whatever parents tell children. And so I decided to not do that, which I'm not sure if I should have or not, but I decided not to do that because she's going to have a life filled with death. And I went and got her from the childcare and I brought her into my office and we shut the door and I sat down and I said, Addie, your fish leaf died. He looked back at me and said, he died? He was such a good swimmer. <laughs> I broke. I bawled in my office with my daughter over this fish. This 79 cent maybe fish, like three for a dollar fish, and we just cried. And I was praying people didn't walk in and see me just crying with my daughter over Little Leaf, who I've never forgotten. Leaf looms large in my life. Why did I cry? It was not because that fish mattered so much to me. I really couldn't care less about the fish. I seen the pain on my daughter's face. I knew she's, she's going to deal with a life of loss and suffering and death and pain and hardship. And there is, there's nothing I can do to prevent her from that. I would, I would literally lay down my life to, to give her a life free of pain, but I, I can't do that. And Jesus, when he, he sees the weeping of his children, imagine he felt the same. When we experience pain and suffering, we're grieving. It means our life can be a canvas on which the glory of God can be displayed. And everything that we encounter passes through the hands of a good and loving God. And it's all according to his sovereign plan that he is working. And one day, number four, your grieving will be done away with forever by a restoring God. Your grieving will be gone. That will be one loss we will not grieve over. In verse 38, Jesus says, was deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, man said to him, I think it's interesting. It doesn't say Lazarus there. It says the sister of the dead man. There's no question that this man was dead. He said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, that you, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus made a man rise from the dead. If we would have been there that day, right, men would forever have had a bigger fish story, right? You've heard when somebody, right, I caught a fish this big, men often went bigger. This would be the ultimate, I saw a man rise from the dead. I saw Jesus' power. He said he was the resurrection and the life. He said we were going to see his glory. Then he made a man rise from the dead. And this person hadn't been dead for like 15 minutes and you wonder, was he really dead? Was he alive? This was four days. The man was, was smelling bad. He was dead. And he rose again. He walked out of the grave. What was Jesus doing that day? It's, it's so interesting to study the miracles of Jesus. Jesus was reversing the curse. What, what do I mean by that? In Genesis, we see this curse that spread to all men and, and God said, Right, that you're going to die. You've sinned. You've lost the garden. And one day you will die as a result of your sin. He cursed the earth. From that day on, we see sin and struggle. We see pain and hardship. We've talked about that almost every week. We see blind. We see diseases. We see just all of these struggles and pain that come from the curse. People die. What does Jesus do when he comes to earth? Jesus starts walking around reversing the curse. He starts healing the sick. He starts curing diseases. He gives sight to the blind. He had compassion on the poor. He casts out evil spirits. He calms storms. Jesus comes around and he is just reversing all of these effects of the curse. 1 Corinthians 5.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus is the curse reverser. He comes in, he speaks freedom to the captives, healing for the broken, forgiveness to the condemned, peace to the fearful, and salvation to the lowly. And then what does he do? Right, And he's going to do this just a few chapters after because as a result of, of healing Lazarus, if you were to read the end of the chapter, it says that they purposed to kill Jesus. So Jesus comes back near to Jerusalem. The religious leaders hear of this, of this Lazarus being raised from the dead and they say, we got to kill this man. Jesus seals his fate as dying for our sins that day when he decides to come back and save his friend. That Christ, a few chapters later, as a result of healing Lazarus and all of the many wonderful things that he had done to reverse the curse, it says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus didn't just reverse the curse, but then he becomes the curse for us. That he existed in this world and humanity murdered him. So how does he respond? He uses his very death as the final act of reversal. His, his final action of 
of, uh, of fixing the curse is his death and resurrection. He had resurrected another man. Shortly after, he would be resurrected himself. The final thing that Christ restored was the relationship between God and man. He bore the curse. He bore the wrath of God. Fixed the relationship between God and man and to offer eternal life to us. Those who believe in God, who trust these principles and what, what God is doing, doesn't make all of their pain go away. They do experience the peace of knowing Christ. If you're, if you're feeling the brokenness of this life, can I implore you to make peace with God today? Your life will not get easier apart from him. The reality is if Christ is not your treasure, then one day you will stand before him with sin-stained hands and rejection of his salvation in your heart. The last thing that you need in this trouble-filled world is God is your enemy. That's the last thing you need. If you're going to experience grief and pain and loss, run to your Savior and have him as your friend. He will be a help to you. He will be a comfort to you. He will be a peace to you. Fall down on your knees before God. Ask for forgiveness and help. He will begin a work in you to reverse the damaging effects of sin in your soul and in your future. For those of you who are in Christ, I, I just want to remind you if Christ is your treasure, that God will one day wipe away your grief forever. Revelation 21, 1 through 5, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be them with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Our hope, our trust, that God is making things new and bringing about his glory even in the midst of our sorrow and Today, I encourage you to see grief as an opportunity to display God's glory, to submit to his plan, to trust in his love, and to hope in his restoration. Transformation will take place and will provide you with rest and peace that can only come from God. It will not make your pain go away, your grief go away perfectly, immediately. And if you're having a rough day, a week, a month, a year. Our, our prayer partners that will come up in a moment will, will grieve with you. My wife and I will grieve with you. And then we'll talk about Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the only hope we have 
beyond this death. Let me give you one last verse to look to Jesus with. It's in Hebrews. We talked about that hall of faith. All the people described in Hebrews 11 who followed God in the midst of grief, pain, and sorrow. They continued to follow God. Here it says in Hebrews 12, the very next verse after that chapter ends, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. Let us run with endurance. Through grief, right? With endurance, through hardship. That's what endurance assumes. The race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As you walk through grief today, look to Jesus. Let him be a hope and a restoration as the one who's making all things new. Neil's going to come and leave us with a blessing.